This week we're on to Ephesians 4, chapter, or chapter 4, 11 through 16. I am just, uh, this microphone is so cool. I love you, Kevin. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. I'll read it in a little bit. I'm so thankful that I've been praising God these last couple weeks for what He's been doing among us. And uh, this week, I get, sometimes you have to preach a message that's, you got to rebuke someone, you got to correct a wayward thinking, or you got to present something that you wonder if everyone's going to, how they're going to respond. And this week, I'm just excited that I get to praise God and thank God for you guys who have been doing exactly what this set of uh, verses is all about. So, let me pray. Father, every single week, I delight in these people. And You keep bringing us more people because, God, we need more parts of the body. We are still without important parts, important functions. And we need more of Your people to unify us into one body. So, would You help all of our hearts now to rejoice in the unity You are bringing us, and long for even greater unity, greater delight as one body who magnifies and glorifies the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. So I've just been marveling in my in the last couple of years over the human body. And I have more of an engineering science type of mind, so... I marvel at the incredible care and precision that God built us as human beings. Scientists look at and reveal to us how complex this machine of the human body is. Bones of different shapes and sizes all fit together at various kinds of joints to allow motion. And muscles grabbing on and pulling to give these bones motion a respiratory and cardiovascular system deliver throughout the body essential nutrients to every piece. And a digestive system provides fuel for these systems to function. And then we have this incredible nervous system which reaches down through every extremity and controls the whole thing. And on top of that, we have this really cool thing called a reproductive system that allows us to make new models of ourselves and continue growing even more and more beautiful versions. It's such a marvel of engineering. When I, it reminds me of this time in college a little while ago when uh, Molly went to this evolutionary biology conference um, where these scientists talk about how smart they are. And one of the scientists put together uh, a presentation of how he would design the human body because he scoffed at this idea that God made our bodies because he saw all these flaws in the structure, in the system. So he presented his design for the, the perfect human body. And of course, to show the ridiculous foolishness of his endeavor, many other scientists would come forward and say, um, I just hate to point out, but this design you made would make this thing up here totally irrelevant. Or what you did here would destroy this other piece up there in a matter of days. 
So multiple versions and corrections later, his human body 5.0 still didn't work correctly. It couldn't reproduce itself, and it was the most atrocious-looking thing that anyone ever seen. And that's because the body isn't just a collection of structures and systems. Its value isn't the sum of its individual parts. An artist will look at this same body and see beauty and feel incredible emotion and express affection towards it. An artist will paint a gorgeous picture of a human body. A sculptor will take this marble piece of stone and shape an incredible figure. Poets write poetry and singers sing about the wonder of the human body in a way that scientists don't. They don't sing about the complexity of the respiratory system, but of their sensory experience with another person. Christopher Marlowe, the old playwright, didn't write, is this the digestive system that launched a thousand ships? No! He wrote about the beauty of Helen of Troy, that her beauty is so magnificent that armies from countries fought against each other just to claim that she would be one of their own. He said, is this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium? And his contemporary, William Shakespeare, mused about a human body when he said, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. So the body is both this marvel of engineering and an inspiring work of art. And that's why it's such a wonderful picture of what God is doing to make us, the church, into the body of Christ. This astounding piece of engineering and stunning beauty that we call the human body is a perfect metaphor for what we, the church, are becoming. And that's what Paul is telling us in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. That we together, this church and the church all around the world, can become one, this beautiful, intricately functioning body bound together in love. So let's look together at Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and human cunning and the craftiness of deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen.
So I couldn't help but notice in Jake's presentation of um, covenant, the multiple times that he quoted this verse, he stopped at verse 13. He said Ephesians 4, 11 to 13 is the proof of leadership equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. And then I say now that the main point in these verses comes in verses 14 through 16. <laughs> so this is a text that we've been quite familiar with because we've been talking about it the last couple of weeks, talking about church leadership and what are the roles of leaders and who are these people. So it's easy to focus on verses 11 through 13 and what the roles are. But if you focus on just those verses, you miss the beauty of what all of that work is going towards. If we don't get all the way to 16, we miss that. So the main point, you can see, begins in verse 14, where he uses the word, so that. Those are clues into how to read what Paul is really getting at. The purpose of the roles in verses 11 through 13 are so that we would grow up to be a mature body. Jesus gives diverse gifts to the church in order to grow the body in unity of Christ-like maturity. Verse 11 tells us what these gifts are, that they're actually people. 12 and 13 tell us what their task is, what their job is, what they do. And then 14 and through 16 explain for us where they're going. What's the purpose of all this, the goal of their work? So first we'll look at who these gifts are, then we'll look at what they do, and finally paint a picture of this glorious aim that we try to accomplish through this work. So first, who are these people in verse 11? I don't want to go into too much detail since we've spent a little bit of time on this already, but the first thing, before we even look at those, that I want to look at is the first three words, and he gave You can't start a sentence with and and then use a pronoun that doesn't explain who that pronoun is referring to. So we wonder what comes before the and. Who is he? Fortunately, we don't need to go far for the answer. We back up and we realize that Paul is talking about Jesus. We've seen that in verses 1 through 10. That Jesus is exalted high into the heavens before the throne of God. And there, in verse 8, Paul quotes Psalm 68 to say that he's ascended, and now, at the end of verse 8, and he gave gifts to men. He says the exact same thing here in verse 11. And he gave. That's the same word. So Paul is so excited about Jesus ascending into heaven that he gets a little sidetracked and goes off on this tangent in verses 9 and 10. And then verse 11, he says, hold up, let me come back. I said, and he gave gifts. I need to come back and explain what these gifts are. So Jesus ascended on high, and from his throne in heaven, he's lavishing us with wonderful gifts. What are they? Verse 11 says they're the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Now that's a little surprising to me. When I think of Jesus standing in heaven showering us with gifts, if I'm a child, I'm probably thinking, sweet, a box with pretty wrapping paper and a nice bow, what's in it? Or if you've spent any time in your Bible, maybe you're thinking, oh, spiritual gifts, healing and prophecy and tongues and and mercy and faith and teaching. Or my mind went to 
gifts of spiritual fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That boy, Crosby. Your parents are doing you good. (laughs) But instead of those things, Paul gives us a list of people who are gifts to the church. How do we understand who these people are? It becomes more clear after we get the list, but just really briefly, let me connect these titles with some other scripture. In Ephesians 2, verse 20, we see the phrase apostles and prophets again. So there, Paul tells us that apostles and prophets had a foundational role in establishing the church. These are the guys who before the church, when the church just began, they were brought in to give guidance to the church. Jesus commissioned them and they're wondering, and the church is gathering together. They go, now what? Jesus is gone. We've all got this thing called the Holy Spirit. What are we supposed to do? So the apostles and prophets give authoritative teaching directly from Jesus. Jesus looked them in the eye and said, go teach this stuff. So they have this foundational role in establishing the church. But you get to evangelists and you wonder, who are these guys? The word evangelist only shows up a couple other times in the New Testament. Once, Philip is called an evangelist. And another time, Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. But in neither of those cases does he tell us the work that they're supposed to do. But we see Paul use this, a similar word, instead of the noun evangelist, he uses the word evangelize in Romans 15, verse 20, where he says he'd like to visit Rome, but instead he's going to go beyond Rome because he wants to preach the gospel, evangelize to people who've never heard, where there is no witness. So an evangelist seems to be someone who does this. They do this church planting, maybe not in the way we are, but this starting a new church witness where there is no believer. We might refer to this person today as a missionary. I'll hold that loosely. But uh, evangelist is someone who goes with the authority of the apostles by holding the word in their hands. And then these last two titles, I think, are actually one role. So each of these titles has a word the in front of it. This definite article saying these are particular people I'm thinking of. Not just a random gift, but particular people. The prophets. The apostles. The evangelists. And then he uses the and puts two titles in there. Shepherds and teachers. Suggesting that the shepherd is the teacher. The two belong together. So these are the guys Paul commanded Timothy and Titus to go appoint in all their local churches. Guys who would Teach with the word from the apostles. Care for souls with that word. Now that's what's what's common among all these roles. That they're word-based ministries. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers are guys who come with the word and use the word to train, to teach, equip, to guide. Apostles commission were commissioned by Christ to establish the church. Evangelists go out to start new churches with this word. And pastors remain at these churches, nurturing, feeding the flock. So as I'm looking at this, and we talked last week about deacons, I wondered to myself, why aren't deacons in this list? We've seen that Philippians 1, Paul writes a letter to, these, to a church and says to the two leaders, Elders, overseers, and deacons. Or when he 
writes to Timothy to explain, how do you set up church leadership? He has an office of elder and an office of deacon. So why does he leave deacons out of this list? Elders are there, pastor. It seems easy just to tack it on the end. Well, one of the reasons is that, as we've seen, deacons aren't authoritative word teachers. They are exemplary servants in all other kinds of ministry. They are the type of people we want to hold up and say, serve, live, love like this type of person. But interestingly, Paul makes it even more clear in verse 12. The reason that Christ gives all of these fantastic word-based gifts is not so they could do the work for the church, but in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Writing scripture, establishing the church, evangelizing, preaching the gospel, and shepherding souls is done so that you guys can do the work of ministry. Our roles as pastors is to equip you to be servants. And the word translated servants or ministry is deacon. So deacons are in this list, but not the official role, but you guys are the servants, the deacons of the church. We equip you to do the work of deaconing. And for what reason? The next phrase explains. For the building up of the body of Christ. It's not the pastor's job to build the church. It's not the evangelist or the apostle's job to build the church. It's our job to make sure you guys have every teaching, every resource you need, so that you can sharpen your skills, be encouraged, and turn around and offer everything you have in service to one another. The church often falls into this trap of kind of a sacred-secular divide where we think that it's the pastor's job to do all the work. That you go to church and see the pastor working. And we think the preaching and the teaching is the primary responsibility of the church. The primary thing that we get all excited about. That's the work of ministry. But Paul says, we've got it upside down. Preaching and teaching equips you. Preaching and teaching is the one that, thing that lifts you guys up to do the real important work of ministry. Serving one another with whatever skills and gifts and resources God has gifted you, whatever experiences you have, bring a special insight, a special ability for building this thing we call a church. So, Brad, making coffee is really important ministry work. (laughs) Playing music, caring for the kids, setting up chairs and taking them down, cleaning the kitchen, bringing food, praying with one another, meeting in each other's homes, studying the Bible together. These are the important ministries of the church. These are the things that build up the body of Christ. But we're not built up yet. Not just in the sense of a church plant that has a long way to go to building up the church, but until heaven, we won't really experience the unity that Paul says here in verse 10. Verse 13, that we want. He says, this work will continue until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. In chapter 2, we saw how we have this positional unity in Christ. Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, man and woman, were all brought together in one body, in Christ. But this is a heavenly reality right now. Jesus is exalted before the throne of God 
And there, when God the Father looks at His Son, Jesus, He sees all of us there, one body. He sees our righteousness through Jesus. He sees holiness in Jesus. He sees perfect unity. But then, you look down in this context, on earth, and we go, just not feeling it yet. It's not, I know, it's been great here among you guys, but we have a long way to go. And that's what Paul's teaching here in verse, or chapter 4. He's, appeal, he's just urging us to have unity. Get this unity. Experience unity. Not just positionally in heaven, but here on earth as well. Just like Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one. I want you guys to have that too. But the question after verse 10 is, how, Paul? How are we going to have this unity? And he says, let me explain. Well, Jesus gave gifts so that you guys could do this work of ministry together and thereby have unity. We are being built up into a mature man. Not that you ladies, in order to become mature, need to become men. But the point is that we together, as one body, are being built up into the mature man. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Together we look to Him, and we become like Him. He's the mature man we are being shaped into. And so, we get to the main point of the text, where Jake left us so hungry during our teaching. Jesus gave these teaching, preaching roles to the church so that we could equip you guys to be the builders of this body. Jesus says that he's going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But there are means that he does that. How does he do that? By having pastors build the church? No, by having the body itself build the church. But he says right now we're immature. We're still children. But he doesn't want us to be children anymore. What is a child in the faith? Sometimes... Being childlike in the faith is a good thing. Jesus says, let the little children come to me. If you don't believe like one of these children, you won't see the kingdom of God. But here, being a child in faith is foolishness. He says, being a child is tossed to and fro by every wave, being carried about by every wind of doctrine. This is like if you one day get really excited about something you learned. Yes, I'm growing in my faith. And the very next day... Oh, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm so discouraged. I'm not sure if this is even the right thing. I'm just going to quit this church thing. Or, you know, I know the will of God for my life. I'm going this way. And the next day, no, the will of God is this way. And I'm going this way. Back and forth, up and down on this roller coaster ride. A child is uncertain about his faith. Has doubts. Is easily persuaded one way or another. Instead, we should be mature strong like a mighty oak tree. When the winds of a giant storm come, it pushes its roots down deeper and deeper so that it becomes stronger and can reach taller and higher and farther. So instead of being children, as in verse 14, he gives us a positive picture of what we're aiming for. Don't be children, but become a mature body, the body of Christ. Grow up in every way. Every part of the body needs to grow up. 
If my feet didn't grow along with my, the, my upper body, I would be falling down all over the place. It would just really be awkward. We, every way we need to be growing up together. <laughs> These preaching and teaching rules in verse 11 are giving you guys the tools so that you can grow your individual parts of the body and serve one another through speaking true words to build one another up. Speaking the truth in love, he says in verse 15. We all have a a speaking, teaching responsibility as the body. And the pastor is equipping you prayerfully to be able to do that well with one another. Now verse 16 is actually, I think, the most beautiful verse in this text, even though it's super confusing in the ESV. I had to look at various translations to go say, what in the world is he talking about? The Greek is just as confusing, just kind of throwing ver- words in there. And you wonder, how do these fit? But it finally made sense when I, excuse me, ignored part of the verse, um, just for a moment. The middle part, which says, joined and held together, all the way up through, each part is working properly. That's explaining what's going on, but the meat of that sentence is, the whole body makes the body grow, so it builds itself up in love. That is simply amazing. The body makes itself grow. The pastors don't make it grow. The evangelists and apostles and prophets don't make it grow. The body makes itself grow. You guys, the church, working together, grow this church. Jesus has chosen to build His church by entering each one of you by His Spirit to build this body in love. The main ingredient of this growth we see at the end of verse 16 is the love of Christ. Alive in each one of us, serving together, giving everything that God has given us for the good of one another. And that's why I think the image of the human body is such a beautiful picture of what we are as the church. That's why I began this message just marveling over the human body. Because every single one of you is necessary for the building of this body, for us to work together properly, for us to grow in joy and delight. You can't say to me, I'm just a big toe. I'm really not that important. You know, you can really live without a big toe. You can survive just fine. And I'm not really lips and a tongue that proclaims the majesties, the manifold wisdom of God. I'm just a big toe. No! That's ridiculous. Every single part is important for the flourishing of the body. Each minor piece is necessary for all of us to experience joy, to function properly. We are... Ask someone who doesn't have a big toe or who, who stubbed their toe so bad that they broke their big toe. It hurts. It's hard to walk around. And you can't dance You can't run. You can't play. You need a big toe to flourish. Yes, you can survive, but not have life in the fullest sense that you should with a big toe. We are this amazing body. Jesus is our head. He's that nervous system that has nerves permeating every part of the body. 
that controls every function. But for muscles to move, they need fuel from the digestive system. And for the digestive system to get to food, it needs muscles and bones. Every single part is important. Yes, you may be able to live without a part, but you won't be able to have the full, vibrant life you were designed for without every part fully functioning. But the incredible thing about our bodies is that when all the engineering is working properly, we were designed to operate in such a way that you forget about your body. You forget about yourself. And you delight. You live this full life experiencing greater things like love and joy and beauty and hope and friendship and community and playfulness and intimacy. These are the things that poets write about and singers sing about. This is what painters paint and sculptors shape out of stone. And this is what the church was made to become, fully equipped by our preaching so that you guys can enjoy life serving together, equipping one another. In the few months that we've spent together, I have felt a joyful unity in church that I haven't felt in a really long time in church. I even, hopefully no one at Bethlehem is going to listen to this sermon, but for my four years at Bethlehem, I didn't feel this much joyful unity. And even years before that at our previous church, I am delighting in how God is shaping this body together. You give yourselves in such sweet ways. And the more we serve as individuals, and I see your gifts at work, the less I see the individual parts, and the more I'm feeling like we are one. We're less and less a core group made up of individual families and more a real, growing church body. And while we haven't reached heavenly bliss yet, I'm thankful every week that I just get a flavor of what heaven is going to be like with you guys. In the spirit of these very verses, you have taken this role of being equipped by the Word and serving so well. And some of you I know are super eager to have a little more responsibility, to be given the opportunity for your gifts to just go and flourish. Just be patient with us a little longer. The best way that we are going to be able to serve one another is to really just get to know one another more and more. To know how to communicate well with each other so we can express our needs and our abilities to match those needs. The better, the more we get to know one another, Jake and I will be able to equip you with the Word better so you'll be able to be more fruitful with your gifts. So I pray that this teaching and preaching equips you guys to serve more and more. And I even pray for the parts of our body that are missing. A human body has millions of complex pieces working together, and we've got a few dozen. So we are certainly missing essential parts of our body. I can't wait. Imagine, it's so fun now. Imagine what it's going to be like when we get a new set of eyes and some new fingernails and some beautiful new hair and a left heart ventricle because right now we only have the right one. All these things are so that we can become a more healthy body and delight in displaying the image of God to the city of Rochester and all over the world. So I praise God that Jesus now sits in heaven 
on His throne with the Father, handing out all these gifts to each of us so we can flourish as His body. Let's pray together. Father, how good, how good is this Spirit that's alive in each one of us. Would this Spirit overflow into love to our neighbor, into love towards our coworker, to the gas station attendant, whoever we come across, because they might be the missing parts of our body that we need. God, we talked about covenanting as members together today. And the great benefit of becoming members together is so that me, as a tongue, can get the essential nutrients from the hearts of this church to preach well. So that joy can overflow from each one of these people by the serving of gifts from the others. God, we need one another to find the greatest joy that we were made for. Show us that. We are in awe that we are thought of as beautiful. We are a stunning bride to our Lord Jesus because Your Spirit is at work in us, unifying us as one body. So together we may proclaim the manifold wisdom of God. May it be ever so every single week we gather.